Praise the Lord that we're continuing forward in the book of Acts. Uh, Let's stand together for the reading of scriptures. I'll read from the uh, last verses there of chapter 7. You see verses beginning at chapter 7, verse 54, through to chapter 8, verse 13. And our verses of focus will be 1 through 8 in chapter 8. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, Both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Later in his life, Saul, who became Paul, wrote these words, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. I hope that you've all heard this verse before and pondered this verse, and it's definitely one to memorize. We know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What a comfort it is for us to know that when the Lord saved us, when he bought us back by his blood, bringing us out of the grip of the devil and into his eternal embrace, he brings us into this plan, his plan to make all things that we experience without exception, all things that we experience work together for good to us, his beloved children. And yet, we also know that even as believers in Jesus Christ, I'm sure you have experienced this, sometimes we face things in this life that seem to challenge this great promise from our perspective. We've all experienced that. We can be tempted to look at our circumstances and wonder skeptically, even doubting, how God could be working this pain or loss for our good. It really takes faith, doesn't it? In today's text, we see a persecuted church walking in faith toward God, even under sore trials. Can we have the same faith as them as we face great pain and loss and threats in our own lives? Can we have this same faith? Let us look to the Lord to strengthen our faith in him today. If you're here today and you think you need more faith, this sermon is for you. We all need more faith. May we be like Joseph who forgave his brothers and said, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. The title of the sermon is Scattered Preachers of Joy Will Go through the text verse by verse. We'll look at Saul and the things that he did. And we'll see how the church was scattered by this great persecution. We see Stephen honored. He's buried by devout men. We see a description of the extensive nature of the persecution that the church experiences. And then there's this faithful response. They go forth everywhere preaching the word. And then Philip is given to us as an example of what is happening throughout the church in general. But now we see Philip as a specific example of this. And really, it's uh, beautiful to see it end with citywide joy. So it starts with great pain and suffering and sadness. We see God bringing great joy in the spread of the gospel through this set of events. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God here in our lives today as I seek to, by God's grace, bring these words to our consciences that we might examine ourselves and walk more faithfully before God. So first, Saul's actions are presented to us in verse 1 and in verse 3. Verse 1, we're told Saul was consenting to his death. That's Stephen's death. And then verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women committing them to prison. You've already seen in verse 58 of chapter 7, we looked at that prior sermon, how Saul participated in Stephen's stoning. The text says, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. But now we discover more in today's text. We see he wasn't just there watching after garments. Saul also wanted Stephen dead. And then after Stephen is murdered by this mob, 
Saul becomes a lead persecutor against the church in Jerusalem. Saul played an important role in this great persecution. What about this word havoc that Saul brought upon the church? What did he do to the church? Well, it means to treat shamefully and to bring injury, to ravage, to devastate, to ruin. So recall this church that we've been looking at in Jerusalem. Think of it. This should grieve us. This beautiful and powerful community of faith that we've seen God develop. It's filled with God's Spirit, we're told. Blessed by God to bring the gospel to the whole town of Jerusalem. To heal so many sicknesses. You know, they bring people out in the street to have them healed. To cast out all manner of demons. And they're so committed to caring for one another. Remember, they were selling their goods and taking care of each other. Barnabas was our example of that. And such a public witness to the glory and the power of Christ was on display in that church, in that church, in that city. And it's ruined, we're told. Ravaged and ruined and devastated by Saul and the great persecution underway. We see here Saul's commitment to his malice. Commentary says Saul here, this idea of havoc, is like some furious beast of prey. That's kind of what the Greek word would signify, how Saul was acting. Now, years later, after his conversion, Paul testifies against himself, confirming this. When he wrote to the Galatians, he said these words, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So, again, we all know the story that God's grace brought forth in the life of Saul, and it's another point of encouragement for us as we read through this story and see God's grace to a sinner like Saul. It should encourage any of us. So in these early days of the church in Jerusalem, the Lord used an angry, vicious, and deceived Saul to ultimately spread the gospel of Christ outside of Jerusalem. Saul meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. Next, we see the text tell, tell us that they're scattered by this great persecution. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So now, Luke transitions for us and describes how the murder of Stephen served as the spark to release this volcano of persecution against the church there, in Jerusalem. Now when we think about this word persecution, it's, it's good to really let it kind of marinate our minds a little bit about what this idea is. The root word of it is to make someone to run, to make someone flee, to use fear to put them to flight, to drive them away, to chase after someone, to harass them, to trouble them, to molest them in any way whatsoever to bring such threat and fear into their lives as to drive them away. So the apostate Jewish leadership initiates a systematic plan, and we'll see evidence of that. It's not an accidental thing. It didn't, even though this one episode appears to have just suddenly occurred, there was a plan either in place beforehand or shortly afterwards. 
and it's to eradicate the church from Jerusalem. They've got to get rid of all of them. It was a great persecution. It was very extensive. It was intentional. It was severe. The commentary says it was a severe, a great persecution that affected the entire Jerusalem church. This means in the context of the prior chapters, in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, that the persecution went beyond just the arrests and the interrogations in which the apostles had so far been the target. So the persecution had begun. They had commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Their whole effort, the whole goal of persecution then and throughout history is to get believers to stop speaking and teaching and preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To get us to stop speaking of His glory and His greatness. To stop testifying to His wondrous work in our lives. Well, it didn't work. They had threatened them, they had beaten them, and they kept on preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. And the gospel's growing. So they're scattered throughout, we're told, Judea and Samaria, and this should spark your memory. The multitude of believers fled from Jerusalem. Prior to this great persecution, the apostles in Jerusalem, as I've said, had experienced arrest, harassment, imprisonment, slander, threats, and beatings at the hands of the Sanhedrin. The church did not flee then, but now it's time for the church to flee. Where did they go? Judea and Samaria. Now remember, immediately prior to Christ's ascension, what did he say? The Lord said these words to his apostles. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So how does this take place? We see how the Lord first built up a multitude of believers in Jerusalem. Acts 6.2 is one spot where that word multitude is used. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. <coughs> and this was right very shortly before the episode with Stephen's martyrdom. So the Lord God in his great infinite wisdom has all these Christians, a multitude of Christians kind of packed in together there in Jerusalem. And then... He sent them out through Judea and Samaria, catapulted out through this volcanic explosion of persecution. But the apostles did not go. Somehow the apostles are kept safe by the Lord in Jerusalem. Perhaps they left for a time and came back, but they did not depart for good. It says they stayed. The apostles clearly believe that they are to stay there and serve the church at Jerusalem. Some believers do remain behind. We'll see that as time goes on. The church at Jerusalem will be referenced throughout the remainder of the book of Acts here and there, especially the Jerusalem church leadership, especially the apostles, and James, the brother of Jesus, will be mentioned. So when persecution occurs, we see the Lord working. You note this in different ways in his people. Some the Lord leads to flee. And some he led to stay in Jerusalem. And so we see the Lord working this in his people then and now. Different ways that he guides his people during times of persecution. But the emphasis is upon the great number of Christians who fled from that persecution into the surrounding area. And we'll see as we go on in the text that they took the gospel with them. But first Luke pauses to bring the story of Stephen to a beautiful close. 
And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Brothers and sisters, Stephen's life is a great example of Christ-likeness for all of us to follow. I hope that you will, in your meditations, take time to consider the goodness of his life. And Christian burial is a way that we honor those who have gone before us. And even in the midst of great persecution, these devout believers were courageous enough to identify themselves with Stephen by carrying him to be buried, and not quietly, but with much mourning over losing him. Commentary tells us those devout men paid their last respects to Stephen. We see three things. To show that they were not ashamed of the cause for which he suffered, nor afraid of the wrath of those that were enemies to it. For though they now triumph, the cause is a righteous cause and will be at last a victorious one. Secondly, to show the great value and esteem they had for this faithful servant of Christ, this first martyr for the gospel, whose memory shall always be precious to them, notwithstanding the ignominy of his death. They studied to do honor to him upon whom God put honor. And then thirdly, to testify their belief and hope of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So even here, woven into this story of persecution and threats, and sometimes those persecutions lead to our death, we bury people also as a sign of our faith in the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, the worst thing they can do to us is send us to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the worst thing they can do to us is send us to Jesus. And so this church had this idea in place. Why else would they be willing to bury him so publicly in the midst of this persecution that erupted? It's as if they're saying, you know, I'd rather die like Stephen than leave Stephen's body laying out there. And so there's this picture. It's almost like it's a foreshadowing of the steady faithfulness of the people of God through this persecution. Even though, as we see here in verse 3, the persecution is extensive. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. (coughs) Now, the, the language leaves room for it to be every house of believers or every house in Jerusalem. They might have just gone house to house like the Gestapo, just looking, listening. But at the very least, they went to every house where Christians were. So the prior efforts to to terrify the church into silence were ineffective. So what's the goal? No more preaching of the gospel. That's the goal. Didn't work. They continued. We're told over and over again, they continued to teach and preach in Jesus' name throughout Jerusalem, even though they had been commanded not to teach anymore in His name. And we saw that the gospel had begun to to spill out of Jerusalem into the surrounding towns, the surrounding villages. So let's note together how extensive this persecution was. It was a great persecution. Every single house was entered, at least of the Christians. They didn't just carry off the men. They carried off the men 
and the women. Now, also note the cruelty. They didn't escort them off. They didn't take them for a walk. We're told they were dragging them off. This goes along with the havoc idea of shame and contempt cast upon them. Like some videos you may have seen of peaceful pro-life protesters being put into handcuffs and cruelly mistreated as they're arrested. See how serious this is. They commit them to prison. They lose their freedom and the livelihood for their family. And they know that their lives are threatened. Stephen had just been put to death. What had become of the children? That's a major question here. Moms and dads dragging them off. Children watching this. Consider the extensiveness of this serious, great persecution. And it's important to consider these things as we see the ongoing courage of these people. All of these terrible things that were happening. And we see their response in the next town they went to. We learned some things about the nature of the Jerusalem church. We'll look at this in passing. It's worth considering. And also the nature of the premeditated persecution. The commentary says, The description of Saul's activity as a persecutor suggests two things to us. First, the house churches in Jerusalem are not only meeting places for believers who kept to themselves, but centers of teaching and evangelism where believers actively proclaim the gospel and attracted new converts. So that's why they went into the homes. Second, the persecution that followed Stephen's execution was organized. Somehow they knew where these people lived. They had a plan to go and get them. Jews connected with the Sanhedrin moved against the believers with a specific plan, tracking down their meeting places and arresting believers in their private residences with the aim of forcing them to abandon their religious convictions or of eliminating them altogether by throwing them into prison, by having them executed, or by forcing them to leave the city. So as we can see, communism didn't think this up. They're just copying what the devil has done throughout history to try to shut down the church. So brothers and sisters, how would you respond to that? If this were to happen around you, and... Christians that you know and love, men and women. Me, Catherine, drug off, placed in prison. Larry, Connie, who's got the kids? How would you respond to this? Here's how they responded. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So, can we say that we can look to God and say, Lord, would you please help me to continue to live for Christ no matter what happens, that his praise would be on my lips, that I would be as wise as a serpent, but that I was, would always be faithful to serve you with my life every day. So we see the good providence of God described clearly in this situation. It's, it's very obvious, isn't it, what has happened here? The scattering and the persecution are painful and scary losses for these people. Think about the things that they had lost suddenly at this point in time. Not only their homes and their livelihood, but this beautiful, joyful community of faith that they were a part of there in Jerusalem. Gone. What does the Lord do? 
How do his people respond? Well, they go everywhere preaching the word. What does that mean? That they don't do. Well, they do not run off and hide in silence. That's what they do not do. They don't go and congregate in one spot and build a moat and see if they can gather enough weapons. They spread out everywhere and they carry out the mission that Jesus Christ gave his church. That's what they do. And what, what did he say to them? I imagine we'll be looking at this scripture over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. These individuals have trusted in Jesus as the Christ. They understand that he suffered on the cross and that upon the cross, they find remission of sin because of his death. They have been brought to repentance and know that their Savior upon the cross has washed away their sins. And they know that they have been made witnesses to take this great joy, these good tidings of great joy to the whole world. Their sins have been forgiven. They know that Jesus Christ rose up from the dead, that death no longer has sway over them. And they know that they too will rise up from the dead. And they want all the world to be delivered from the sway of the devil and the threat of hell and the fear of death and brought in to this great kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they're devoted to this simple message and the life of joy and power that comes from believing in the Messiah. Commentary says, though persecution may not drive us off from our work, yet it may send us as a hint of providence to work elsewhere. But I hope that you can see that their continued service and faithfulness is based upon their gratitude that Jesus has died for their sins. Their continued faithfulness is not because of a devotion to a list of doctrinal points. Their faithfulness is because they love their Savior who has died for them and been raised from the dead and who now reigns. And it's got to be true for us as well. This is relational. It's love for Christ because He loved us. So we're given an example. Philip. The text says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So Luke, again, provides us with a specific example of God's care for his church as he empowers the spread of the gospel through that region. We've seen other good examples, haven't we? Barnabas, Stephen, and now the Lord sets Philip before us. It's a pattern. General descriptions of what's going on in the church and then specific examples. 
He was one of the seven, Philip, right? One of the seven chosen and appointed in Acts 6. So what do we know about him? He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, like Stephen, with a good reputation, like Stephen. He must have been known as a servant as well, like Stephen. And here we see Philip is a faithful preacher as well. Philip could have just as easily been the one who was martyred. Look how similar he is to Stephen. And what does he do? He keeps right on preaching. He keeps on living the life that Stephen would have been living had Stephen not been put to death. I hope we can see here and be encouraged, brothers and sisters, by the, the power of God accompanying the preaching of His Word. The power of God in our lives accompanying the living and the preaching of the Gospel. Multitudes believe. That's a really big deal. Have you ever been a part of going into a city or a town and the whole town believing the Gospel through your preaching? That's never happened to me. I don't even know anybody personally that that's happened to. But we can pray, can't we? That we could be witnesses and that we could see people converted through the gospel lived and spoken in our lives. Many miracles occur via Philip. So these are miracles. These are not things you can explain with herbs or medicines. These are miracles outside of what is natural. Demons are driven out, again, proving the utter superiority of Christ over all the cosmos. And the sick are healed. All forms of sickness are healed. And again, we've seen this in the church in Acts. We saw this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the continued power of Christ Himself poured out through Philip in this place. When the Lord's providence drove them to a new place, the Lord's Holy Spirit accompanied them in their mission. The Lord never leaves us alone in our distress, and He always helps His people with His power to accompany the gospel. He never drives us to a new place that He's not already there before us. And He continues to be with us and to help us. He will never leave us or forsake us. The Lord fills this region of Samaria at this time with His power and His presence, just like He had done in Jerusalem as they believe upon Jesus as their foretold Messiah. And particularly theologically, this was a very important time because the power is not limited to the place of the temple. The power is not limited to the place of that physical temple. The power comes from heaven via God's Spirit into His people. And where they go, He goes and He brings His power to accompany the presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should expect this in our lives. We should expect to see this kind of power working in us and through us as we walk in this world. Am I saying that we should see resurrections from the dead and the casting out of demons and the healing of all kinds of illnesses? I'm not making that specific claim. But I am saying that as we go, it shouldn't surprise us to see God doing mighty things to testify to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as we go. So what is the result of this? We get this description of what's going on in the city. I hope this will kind of be the, the summit we can rest on together today. There was great joy in that city. Why was there great joy in that city? Because there, were great, there was great joy in their hearts. 
There was great persecution. What do we have now? Great joy. There was great suffering. What do we have now? Great joy. There had to have been lots of doubt. What do we have now? A lot of people believing the gospel. And so what do you have? Is The whole city is filled with joy. Look at the strength of this persecution. Look at the power of this organization. And it's nothing compared to heaven. It's nothing compared to Christ. It's nothing compared to His Spirit. It's nothing compared to His Word. Can any earthly organization ever pose a threat to Christ and to His plan? No. And we see this greatness here. So what's the result of believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Individual and corporate great joy. What does David say? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Brothers and sisters, are you walking in joy? Is your heart filled with gladness every moment of every day as you consider the great reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been brought into? That you have been delivered from your sins. You have been brought into forgiveness. You've been restored to favor with the creator of the universe through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he has bestowed this upon you. And nothing, no one, anywhere, not even your own sin, can separate you from him. And you will rise again, and you will get a new body, and you will live in bliss forever and ever. Look around, because we're going to be together. And all those that we have lost, who have gone before us to be with Christ, we will see them again. Brothers and sisters, is joy in your heart? Because if it's not, then we just have to go back to the gospel, don't we? We just have to go back to who Jesus Christ is. And I'll just keep preaching it until your faces light up even more. Because we we need to get to the summit together today of God's divine Mount Zion joy. Not happiness that can be taken away. Not persuasive speech that a preacher can accomplish. But Jesus Christ our Lord, by His Spirit, once again, shining the favor of heaven into our minds and into our hearts. So you see, joy is that internal gladness that can't be touched, can't be taken away, springing forth from the Lord's presence within us. Let's think about this. It's the Lord's presence within us, His favor, His smile, no shadow, No shade, no clouds, all sunshine. Yeah, we can grieve Him. But we know that God's smile towards us can never be taken away. His favor, His forgiveness towards us, His fatherly heart towards us can never be taken away. And He dwells within us. And let me ask you something. Is Jesus glad? Somebody tell me, please. Is Jesus joyful? Yes, He is. So whose joy is this? This is Jesus' joy that is ours, that He's given to this whole city. So it's not at all dependent upon external, earthly circumstances which are shifting and can be taken away. Your health, your job, your relationships, the things that are most dear to you, can vanish in a moment 
Do you know this? Do you understand the things that are so much in front of you, that are so precious to you, can be gone in a moment? And that is why our joy does not consist in the things of this world, but rather upon Christ who never changes. Where's Jesus? At the right hand of the Father. For how long? Forevermore. Tell me what's wrong on Mount Zion. Nothing. Tell me about the brightness of heaven. It's in your soul. Tell me about the streams coming forth from God's throne. Clear streams of goodness and joy to you. Day in and day out. To His people. Day in and day out. Not just making joyful cities. Making joyful hearts. Joyful marriages. Joyful families. Joyful churches. Joyful cities. And ultimately, let the nations be glad as the whole globe will praise His glory because there is none like Him. Commentary says, This occasioned great joy. Each one rejoiced for himself as he in the parable who found the treasure hid in the field. And they all rejoiced for the benefit hereby brought to their city and that it came without opposition, which it would scarcely have done if Samaria had been within the jurisdiction of the chief priests. Note, the bringing of the gospel to any place is a just matter of joy, of great joy to that place. Hence the spreading of the gospel in the world is often prophesied of in the Old Testament as the diffusing of joy among the nations. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The gospel of Christ does not make men melancholy, but fills them with joy. If it be received as it should be, for it is glad tidings of great joy to all people. So, God, our Father in heaven, has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, and He went to the cross and died upon the cross for the remission of our sins. And He rose up from the dead, justification accomplished, forgiven forever, His righteousness given to us. And now we are God's friends forever and ever, and we are indeed more than conquerors. And by God's grace, we can continue to overflow with this joy day in and day out. The summit, the vista that He gives to us of salvation gets clearer and more beautiful with every passing day as we devote ourselves to Him and fix our gaze upon Him. And the joy will be sweeter and sweeter with each passing moment. No matter what comes against us, no matter what happens in our life, this is the conquest of the gospel in us and through. By faith. So a couple of questions um, on a couple of ideas from the sermon. So first of all, about persecution. What is the goal of persecution? You know, one of the things you should know as a result of this sermon is what the goal of persecution is. It is to silence us so that we do not speak and teach and testify to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And His unique work upon the cross for his people. 
That there is none like Him. That there's no other way to have your sins forgiven. There's no other way to get to God. There are not multiple paths to God. There is only one way to be made right with God. And that is through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if there's one name we need to be speaking, it is this name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is salvation under heaven by no other name. So what is the goal of persecution? To keep us from speaking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you all know this power. You all have been in situations where you know that everything changes when you speak the name of Jesus Christ. You know it does. When you're speaking it with a reverent and joyful and loving heart and a desire to share with someone the goodness and the glory of who he is. All right. Now, have you ever thought about invisible persecution? I think one way of describing the secular world that we live in, the secularized, the humanistic secularized world that we live in, is invisible persecution. What do I mean by that? Well, nobody's standing there with a rod, right? No one's standing there with handcuffs in general. But there's just this sense, this blanket awareness that you're not supposed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. That's secularism. That's a world where the Holy Spirit of God is being withdrawn from those people. You see, it's not supposed to be that way, brothers and sisters. That is not the way it is supposed to be. The way it is supposed to be is that when God... You think this city, that there was anywhere in that city where they wouldn't speak of Jesus? Do you see the difference? A secularized world is a place filled with misery where the name of Jesus Christ is not to be spoken. And it's a silent pressure. And I've grown up in it. You've grown up in it. It's gotten worse. Now, where does this lead to? I believe that unchecked, it leads to overt persecution. And it's happening now. Friends of ours, people that we know, men, a a man whom I've hugged as a brother that I work together with in the pro-life effort, his family has been treated this way. And we know it's persecution when you look at the number of pro-life advocates that have been charged by this Department of Justice compared to the number of crisis pregnancy centers where they counsel women and help them make better choices that have been attacked, vandalized, without charges being brought. That's just an example of power bases in our world today carrying out persecution. So let us pray that we would be a city filled with joy. That that would be true of our region. And that speaking the name of Jesus aloud would be very easy around here. And that everybody would be doing that around here, in your neighborhood, in where you work, where you go. Your cashier is glad to talk about Jesus when you go through the line at Publix. And when you go to the post office, there, you're there, you're praying... And you're bringing the sunshine that drives away the clouds of secularism. And where you go, people just want to hear about Jesus. People just want to talk about his glory. You see, that's the power of God that changes the whole spiritual environment. Expect that. Pray for that. (coughs) Next. About providence. About God's sovereignty. Do you believe the scripture from Romans 8? 
28 that Paul wrote some years after this. Do you believe that is true? Do you believe the Lord works all things together for good to those who are His? Do you believe that promise? Do you encourage yourself and others? Now the flip side of this would be to ask yourself this. What losses, what trials, what disappointments tempt you to doubt this promise? Tempt you to doubt God, either God's power or God's love toward you. Few people doubt that God has the power to work all things for good. But I think we end up wondering about his love, don't we? Well, he's given us this promise, brothers and sisters, and while we cannot see it with our own eyes and we don't understand how it can be true, it is true, and it is it is a foundational reality for us believers to know that our Father in heaven is forming us and crafting us into Christ's likeness. He's making us like Jesus through every single experience that we go through. This should be really encouraging to us. All right, next. About having faith in the midst of trials. About having faith and more faith in the midst of difficulties. Looking at your own life as you go through, as you look back and you've gone through difficult things, Did you see a pattern? Do you see a pattern of continuing to preach, speak, testify, and live for Christ even in the midst of grief and loss? So when you're going through hard times, is that still who you are? Or even, you know, in the face of threats, when you feel like it may not be profitable for you to continue to testify to His goodness and to live for Him. So those are a question for you to ask about your own faith. And do you need more faith? And God will give you more faith. Right? But a lot of times, you have to be thirsty for more faith. So my goal is if if you need more faith, that you would see it and that you would ask God for more faith. And, And brothers and sisters, He will give you more faith. He will give us all more faith. Next. So as you walk with God in life and, and go through hard times and, and by His grace have faith and walk in more faith, do you have enough faith to expect God's power to accompany your testimony to His grace and His goodness? This is something we cannot leave out of the preaching of the book of Acts. These miracles, these healings, the demons cast out, brothers and sisters, There is a supernatural, invisible aspect to the power of God that is present right now, today, still. Has God changed? No. Is Christ still on the same throne? Yes. Is he still pouring out his Holy Spirit? Yes. Are there still demons that need to be placed under his feet that are active in this world? Yes. Is there still sickness in the world? Yes. So let's let's have wisdom and faith as we look to God for the demonstration of great power. Maybe not here at our church, maybe not in your life, but in the church at large. As the church goes forth, as the gospel goes forth, let's look to God and ask Him to demonstrate His great power. It goes back to the prayer that they prayed early on when they were first persecuted and they are pointing to Acts 2 and they said, please stretch forth your hand to perform signs and miracles and healings. 
to show forth the name and the glory of Jesus. So, you know, it's worth stopping and emphasizing this because this is not what we see around us. And so may we look to the Lord to bring forth this kind of power. And finally, about joy. I kind of got ahead of myself before I already... I couldn't help running ahead to this part already. But really, have you ever considered what your sins deserve? Have you ever kind of considered justice and the justice that's described in Scripture and, and what awaits those who must pay for their own sins with their own suffering? Have you ever considered that before? And, and the intensity and the duration of that suffering? I mean, the, the Scriptures speak to us on these matters. It's, it's not something for hyperbole. It's, it's a reality that those out, outside of Christ will face eternal, infinite suffering. Perfectly just. Perfectly in keeping with their own actions. Perfectly in keeping with their own sins and their own rebellion. God will bring justice. Do you want God's justice on you, brothers and sisters? Praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ because He, upon the cross, took God's justice upon Himself for you, for me, for those who trust in Him. He took God's wrath upon Himself. This is the source of gratitude and joy. God raised Him from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. This is our source of gratitude and joy. He is at God's right hand. We will be at God's right hand forever. Jesus is our source of gratitude and joy. Brothers and sisters, divine power, God's divine power and presence, His love overcomes our sin, our grief, and our fears, and everything else. So may He bless us to experience this reality by faith more and more with each passing day until we see Him face to face. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are Your grateful children once again today. Thank You for Your Word and Your Spirit. Thank You for Heaven's voice, for the comforting breeze of Mount Zion by Your Spirit and Your Word. Thank You, Father, for a drink from Heaven. Bless us, we pray, Lord, to hear Your Word, to heed Your Word, to believe Your Word. Bless us, Lord, to be filled with faith no matter what we face. Oh God, bless us with the joy experienced by these believers in Samaria. Bless us to walk in faith no matter what we face and to grow in faith, Lord. Oh, bless us with more of Christ, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name.